0: Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. At September's G20 summit in Delhi, The government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi promoted the country's Digital Public Infrastructure, or DPI, as a model for the world for how to develop digital systems that enable countries to deliver social services and provide access to infrastructure and economic opportunities. Other world leaders were enthusiastic about the pitch, endorsing a common framework for DPI systems. But even as an Indian vision for DPI appears to be attractive beyond that country's borders, What are the ideas and events that shaped India's approach? My guest today recently published an essay titled The Bangalore Ideology, How an Amoral Technocracy Powers Modi's India, looking at histories of technocratic ideas in India and how they have combined with Modi's particular brand
1: of populism. So my name is Mila Samjub. I'm a resident fellow at the Information Society Project at Yale Law School. I research I like to call it the aesthetics and ideologies of digital infrastructures in India today. I'm particularly interested in infrastructures of development. My interest in sort of aesthetics and ideology specifically comes out of my sort of background and training in art um, and architecture. Now, I'm applying that more to domains of policy and political economy. We've just come off the G20
0: in India, where digital public infrastructure was a main topic of discussion, almost a main sales point from the Modi government. Mm -hmm. I reached out to you initially because I had read an essay that you wrote called The Bangalore Ideology, How an Amoral Technocracy Powers Modi's India, uh, which really looks at the history, sort of strands of thinking and ideas that have gone into what has become this focus on DPI. Where did your inquiry start? What did you set out to do when you wrote this essay?
1: I first got interested in this sort of set of Indian digital infrastructures around 2016, when there was a big movement against the Aadhaar Biometric Identification Project in India. And over the years, I've been tracking the ways in which that project has morphed, in which it's grown. The article that you mentioned was really trying to unpack the history of state Constructed digital infrastructures in India, and as you mentioned, that sort of now forms the backdrop of sort of what India is trying to promote globally as digital public infrastructures.
0: This is a set of kind of book reviews all smashed together.
1: Yes, it is. So, as I said, I'm interested in aesthetics and narratives. So, I think also that technocracy is playing a really important narrative role in in India today. And so, part of what I'm doing is not only telling the history of technocracy, but also telling showing us how other people are historicizing it today to make arguments about what should be done in the present.
0: You start with a quote, which comes from the first book you look into from Nandan Nilakani, the 2015 book, Rebooting India, Realizing a Billion Aspirations. And The quote you provide is, quote, the fundamental nature of government is a platform. We are talking about radically reimagining government, its purpose, its role, and the way it carries out its functions with technology at its core. I suppose this is the premise that you're interrogating in this essay, this idea of government as platform, government as technocratic medium on which the state builds its function. Where did this idea come from? You say Nandan isn't just pulling this out of thin air.
1: So first, I think it's really important to understand what government as a platform means for Nandan Nilekani. In that book in Rebooting India, Nile Kani describes how a set of digital infrastructures have to be inserted into all aspects of a government function. So we're talking about identification through the Aadhaar Biometric Project. We're talking about facilitating payments through what's called unified payments interface. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking about collecting tolls on highways. We're talking about agriculture, talking about the welfare apparatus at the center of all of these need to be a set of software infrastructures. It's important to note that these are software infrastructures. There's not a lot of hardware construction going on over here. And effectively, each of these domains is already functioning by using a set of application programming interfaces or APIs, which make for a composite system that is interoperable. Your payments and identity and your healthcare can all be managed by the same set of software infrastructures. And so That's what we're talking about. When in India, that's taken the form of India Stack. And as it's being exported now, that's what we call digital public infrastructure.
0: So that's today. But the purpose of this essay is to take us back, of Mm -hmm. course, Mm -hmm. in time Mm -hmm. and to look at the sort of strain of ideas that have led us here. You go quite a, a ways back. You go all the way back to even the 1930s. I suppose for my listener, can you take them through the short version of
1: the sort of trajectory of the idea of technocracy in India. So as you mentioned, this history begins in the 1930s before India is independent. And already technocracy and technocratic ideas are being used to imagine what kind of a future India will have as an independent nation. So already we can see that the narrative around technocracy is one that's about sort of future aspirations, right? When India becomes independent in 1947, immediately a sort of large technocratic apparatus set up. And this sort of consists of a few elements. India at independence is a socialist planned economy. The goal of planning is to provide economic growth in a self-reliant way. This also meant not falling into the trap of neocolonialism and resulted in a broad policy of what's called import substitution industrialization which effectively meant building up large-scale industries so that India would have to avoid depending on imports. Now, planning was also a very technical discipline, which is why we're thinking of it as a technocracy. And sort of a lot of it's coming out of statistics at this moment. The Indian Statistical Institute in Calcutta is a really powerful institution. The sort of five-year plans are being written up by Chandra Mahalanobis, who is the director of that institution. So it's a kind of planned, data-based technocracy at this moment. I think it's also important to flag that it's incredibly elite. Um, Mahalanobis was educated at Cambridge. His plans were really coming top-down onto the people of the country. The literacy rate at independence was 12%, and yet you had these set of really sophisticated plans that were planning to dramatically increase productivity and eliminate poverty in a few decades.
0: So the goal here is almost to treat the economy, treat Question development almost as a kind of physics.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's a really useful thing that you point out there because Malinobis was trained as a physicist and he often described his approach to planning as like thinking about it as like sort of thermodynamic study. And that sort of appeal to physics is a classic kind of move that sort of experts make, which sort of allowed him really to sidestep the discipline of economics altogether. He would say that economists were engaged in politics they couldn't come to objective conclusions about what needed to happen. And his training as a physicist, let him arrive at the one right answer. And again, that's a disciplinary claim about technocracy that we see coming up over and over again. So technology is the answer for India in many domains, right? Scientists are being recruited to build dams, we're focusing on nuclear energy. Science is supposed to be applied across the board to sort of India's developmental problems. And science here refers to a particular orientation towards the world, right? It signified like, so teachers and doctors were also considered scientists in this sort of Nehruvian period. It was a sort of very broad definition of a sort of modern person that would apply any sort of technical skill to shape a bright future for the country. That was a weird uniquely participatory moment which didn't really live up to its goals often. So within planning, as I mentioned, statistics is the sort of particular form of technoscience that is being pressed into service. And that's the story that sort of Nikhil Menon's book tells. It's called Planning Democracy. Nikhil Menon describes how the state under Nehru and Malanobis built up what he calls India's first data infrastructure. That sort of happened off the back of a new technology at the time, which was randomized sampling and which sort of allowed Nobis to collect huge amounts of data about all sectors of Indian economy and society very quickly and cheaply and would form the basis for the plans. So I think when we're talking about technology for the purposes of our project, we want to be thinking about data specifically and what role that's playing at that time.
0: So it starts with math, starts with statistics, and this is right at the dawn of the computer
1: age. What happens when computers come along? This is right at the dawn of the computer age. In fact, Menon has a sort of really nice chapter on how computers are imported into India first at the Indian Statistical Institute in order to compute some of these data on the economy. So computers are intimately tied to this history. Computers proliferate in Indian technocracy and in society in general. Starting in the 60s and 70s, you have the application of computing within private corporations, but more importantly, you have it within the state. And at this point, the state it's undergoing many shifts. So before we get to computing per se, I want to just talk about how technocracy itself uh, shifted. If the early promise of sort of post-colonial planning under Nehru and Malanobis was to build up this bright future for India, that promise failed very quickly. The five-year plans didn't deliver on their data-based promises. Often that had to do with the fact that the plans simply just didn't compute the right things. They didn't account for the fact that so much of India was agrarian and very poor and couldn't provide the demand to sustain the kind of growth that they were hoping for. As this sort of early optimism vanishes, the technocracy hardens into a bureaucracy and it becomes this sort of Byzantine bureaucracy that imposes sort of detailed controls on everything. You can only export a certain, export or import like a very certain number of, of chips or of computer parts or of cars or machinery, what have you. We call that the license permit raj, return to the raj, but in the form of licenses and permits. And that's the bete noir of today's capitalists, symbolizing everything that's wrong with state socialism. And that's a rhetorical foil for much of today's discourses around tech and the state. Where does that take us to from a timeline perspective? When does
0: that period start to draw to its close?
1: So, we're talking about the 1970s, right? That period starts to draw to a close in the 1980s, which is also the moment when computing starts to take off in a big way in India. And so, there's this narrative which kind of a couple of the books that I review also really buy into, which is that sort of computing brought the end of that kind of bureaucratic, corrupt state socialism, right? Computers enter within the state in the 1980s and the 1990s in a big way, and if computers had once been in the headquarters or in the big universities in big cities, now they were suddenly being proliferated in more regional centers. And in the state, this happens through the promise of what Nafis Hassan describes in an article in the excellent new book, Overload Creep Excess and internet from India and Nafisa's argument kind of hinges around the relational database management system, which is a new kind of database system, which is inserted into all aspects of state functioning starting in the late eighties and early nineties. And suddenly data input and output are happening at the local level. On the ground, government employees are becoming data workers, working with sort of computerized systems on a day-to-day basis, that kind of sort of collection of data also means that government services can now be privatized in new ways. That kind of data entry work means that anybody could start fulfilling the roles of government work. Government work can start being contracted out in new ways. And so there definitely is a sort of an interplay between the rise of neoliberalism and computing
0: this is also the moment where the state can begin to use these
1: technologies to have a more direct interface with Mm -hmm. citizens? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now, yeah, so now you're getting to the point where you might go to book a train ticket and your Indian Railways booking clerk is typing into a computer over there and suddenly computing and data itself is becoming individualized, right? In the 1950s and 60s, the sort of Statistical data, which was based on random uh, samples, was still at a population scale. And so kind of computers couldn't address individuals. The state couldn't address individuals. And now with relational databases and individualized kind of terminals, individual records start to matter. The other sort of half of the story of computing in the eighties and the nineties is the rise of India's software services industry. This is the
0: great business process outsourcing economic miracle.
1: This is, this is exactly the great economic miracle. Business process outside sourcing starts a tiny bit later, but this is often told as a story that begins after the economic reforms of 1991. In 1991, the Indian economy leaves behind planning, opens up a lot of your sort of those controls, export controls are taken away. This sort of happens under pressure from the IMF. And so that's a major moment in recent Indian history. I think there's compelling reasons to just think that the story of software outsourcing actually began with state support in the 1970s. That's a sort of story that Jyoti Saraswati tells in the great book, Dot But in any case, the software industry is becoming really powerful, and their main business is doing back office work for large corporate clients and governments in the West.
0: This focus on still efficiency... These sort of notions, perhaps still similar perhaps to Malanobis's day, a kind of paternalistic technocracy, all this is combining with what technology is actually making, mm-hmm. making possible. For the regular citizen at this point, we're in the early aughts. What's going on? Is it working for them?
1: So this is India's undergoing this economic miracle through computing who sort of software services exports. That said, that's not a very labor-intensive kind of sector. And the people who are directly and indirectly employed by this sector are a very small fraction of the total Indian population. Um, And so while you have these glossy images of a modernizing India, um, you also have kind of an increasing uh, divergence between the rich and the poor. Computing's really gated off at this point. Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, it's claims that the world is flat after he visits the campus of Infosys, one of India's largest software companies in a sort of software technology park. But that's basically like a gated, a gated zone where inside the roads work well, the electricity always works, everyone's fairly wealthy and well-dressed and well-fed. That's not the case for most of the country. What do you see as most significant
0: in the period... From around when Thomas Friedman's tromping around emphasis and having techno utopian thoughts on through to, say, the last decade or so.
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's one answer in the political economy of the tech sector itself. Software services in India are undergoing a crisis in the late aughts. Sort of these large Indian firms are losing their market share. Within the industry in India, and we have the entry of a lot of global players, so we're talking about companies like SAP and Accenture that are effectively replicating the Indian model, poaching sort of Indian engineers from the Indian companies, and taking advantage of all the cost advantages of working out of India. And sort of Jyoti Saraswati describes in detail how these sort of global companies take over the industry body, the really powerful industry body, which kind of shaped much of the software sector's development. National Association of Software Services Companies or NASCOM. So so that's one kind of crisis that's taking place. Another crisis that's taking place is that that business models themselves are shifting. With the rise of cloud computing, you don't really need sort of software services so much anymore in the sense of like having back end computer support working in house for your company at all times. And around 2010, you get a new shift in thinking in the Indian software industry towards products, towards software products. So the great goal of the sort of industry shifts somewhat to saying, well, well, what if we could build products? Like, what if we could build truly innovative products that everybody could use? We would find new customers and we would avoid sort of the problems that are currently plag- plaguing the industry. And that search for new customers really meant looking at Indians as customers. And so in 2013, you have a, a group that breaks away from NASCOM called the Indian Software Products Industry Roundtable or IceBert. IceBert has a lot of very important members of the tech community as uh, working for it as its volunteers. And it really starts actively lobbying government in a way that sort of we haven't seen before.
0: And this is where the idea for Adhar is born?
1: So the idea for Adhar is born in many places. (laughs) I don't think this is a simple story, and I think we're still unpacking some of that complexity. The idea for Adhar is born from Nandan Nilekani. and Nandan Nilekani is a sort of key figure also in the rise of Icebert. He was also one of the founding members of NASCOM, so he's one of our most celebrated technocrats today. And the idea of Adhar really... Is born around 2008, where you can currently have a crisis in the state. Remember we talked about kind of export control, the sort of license permit raj, sort of that kind of the state still hasn't really been able to shake off that image. It's, and it's no longer really attached to permits anymore, but now it's attached to corruption. It's attached to an, a really powerful bureaucratic um, and political elite that is um, in cahoots with industry um, in a way that's excluding people. Um, in a way that's sort of a massive drain on the public exchequer, and so Aadhaar is pitched as a way to really plug corruption in the welfare system. First, when Iceberg comes to Aadhaar, it sees in Aadhaar an infrastructure that can be reused for the purpose of, purposes of private companies. A sort of a whole different strand of Aadhaar also is that the state sees it as a very useful tool for sort of national security purposes. And I think the best way to understand Aadhaar and India's tech is actually as a set of platforms that allow all of these many uses that sort of allow the convergence of different interests and different interest groups. And I think that's really their power. But it's around this time that
0: Indian politics starts to change.
1: Yes, exactly. So we have Iceberg taking up Aadhaar and Iceberg sort of coins this new framework of India Stack, which is this sort of set of APIs that I mentioned already. So that's happening on the one hand. On the other hand, in 2014, Narendra Modi is elected. Narendra Modi is the leader of the Hindu Nationalist BJP party. And Modi's election is really interesting because it marks a break from previous BJP policies. Modi really campaigns, even though he is a Hindu nationalist, In favor of India as being a Hindu nation, his campaign is really on a development plank. He's promoting development. He's promoting sort of modern high tech images of India. Is Modi interested in Aadhaar when he comes into office? Modi starts by campaigning against Aadhaar because it was one of, it was a sort of infrastructure that was championed by the opposition Congress. But very quickly after he comes into power, he meets Nanda Nilekani and Nilekani demonstrates the uses of Adhar to someone like Modi. One of the key uses there is that he shows how Adhar could be used to, as the basis of attendance systems for government employees to show that they're coming into work regularly and on time. And so there's a promise of Adhar as beating efficiency and productivity in the state. That like kind of meshes very nicely with Modi's anti-corruption message, but also his sort of message of discipline. So like all of these different kind of uses of avatar are getting layered onto each other, and as that happens, it's becoming more and more ironclad against criticism.
0: So we're seeing somehow the combination of technocracy and populism.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, folks have been calling this managerial populism or technocratic populism, a core part of the narrative around technocracy like Aadhaar, which is so tangible in everyday life, right? People have to use Adhar for to get their welfare payments, to get any sort of subsidy from the state, but also to register mobile phones, to use their bank accounts, and so on. So it's this really tangible infrastructure. And as opposed to, say, the technocracy of old that we, discussed, that we discussed earlier. And so part of that sort of everyday individual tangibility is really the claim that Adhar is a tool that works in favor of the people and against corrupt, entrenched elites, no matter who those are. And that's the classic populist binary. Is that what's really going on here? I think it's fair to say no. I think it's fair to say that Adhar has been incredibly exclusionary infrastructure- its introduction into welfare has caused, has resulted in many deaths from hunger. Just recently, there was a major movement around the introduction of digital Aadhaar related system into the payments of, of a guaranteed welfare uh, work scheme in India called the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act. That sort of movement showed the amount of popular discontent that there is around Adhar in these infrastructures and testify to the amount of exclusion that's taking place because of them. We should note that on the other side, this exclusion also results in in less outlay and in cost savings, so it can be spun as a benefit. Finally, I'll say that Adhar also has not had any observable role in decreasing corruption and welfare. A major study by the Jamal Abdul Latif Poverty Action Lab a couple of years ago showed that It had negligible effects on corruption in welfare. How would you
0: characterize at this point, and I I don't know if this is the place to bring in this concept of the sort of slow violence, but Mm. how would you characterize what it's like for the typical Indian citizen to interact with the state at this point through Adhar with this sort of perpetual need to comport themselves to the database, comport themselves to this, Broader system.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's important to say when I'm talking about Aadhaar, I'm actually talking about a larger set of infrastructures that were built on the Aadhaar model. And these infrastructures often just don't work very well. And Nafiz Hassan sort of traces this back to the 1980s introduction of uh, relational databases into the Indian state. And he argues that sort of that kind of creates a form of violence that he calls slow violence. You might show up. For a welfare payment at a government office, try to use the finger other fingerprint reader and it doesn't recognize you. And so then that sort of sets off an interminable process of trying to get your records fixed on the database. And Nafis contends that is what citizenship means in contemporary India. It's It's just an endless process of trying to get one's records fixed, of trying to takes the database to match the reality of one's circumstances.
0: And yet, here we are in 2023, you've got, you know, apparently Bill Gates hailing Modi for his leadership on digital public infrastructure. You've got India basically saying this is the path forward, uh, particularly for developing nations. This is the way to go. A lot of folks, of course, in India, Modi, an incredibly popular politician, in part because of the economic advances in the nation over the last uh, several years. Is this working?
1: I think, as, as I mentioned, I think this is, these infrastructures are incredibly powerful tools for generating alliances. And to the extent that they can generate a viable electoral alliance, or to the extent that they are one part of generating a viable electoral alliance, they're working very well. A lot of people who are benefiting from India's economic growth right now, that's still a small minority. But those for those people, these infrastructures look great. They're working very well. They're showing how India is this modern, high-tech country. Digital payments are a part of everyday life for urban middle-class citizens and a really revolutionized everyday life. I don't want to knock that. They have had an immense impact, and they are really palpable as as a new form of using technology. And so to the extent that one sees one's aspirations for India reflected in how easy it is to make a payment to access your food delivery services, right I, I think they're very successful and that's what's let's say particularly dangerous about these systems in your piece. you say
0: this Bangalore ideology, quote, justifies the power and privilege of a new ruling coalition of Hindutva politicians and digital capitalists. It allows digital India to retain all the extra institutional and unaccountability of older technocracies while facilitating a project of extraction cloaked in a rhetoric of populism. Mm -hmm. Them's fighting words, Mila.
1: They are indeed.
0: What are you saying is really wrong with this DPI that's being hailed by world leaders.
1: These systems are really being introduced into incredibly unequal societies. India is the major case here, and they are serving to exacerbate that inequality. They're serving to enable a small set of companies to suck up a lot of citizen data in the first place. They are also enabling those companies to build softwares Build apps and platforms on a basis, on the sort of basis of these infrastructures for which they've undertaken no risk at all. The government, having built out these infrastructures, takes the risk for private companies to innovate. I don't think that's how this should work. At the same time, they're allowing a sort of incredibly illiberal and anti democratic government to become even more so and increasing its powers. And as I keep saying, I think it's the alliance between those two forces that is really troubling here to me. And I think because technocracy is so apolitical on the surface of it, because it signals apoliticism so strongly, I'm worried about the system and I'm worried about what happens when they're exported elsewhere as well.
0: So where do you see this headed? I suppose some would regard this focus on DPI, this focus on these public infrastructures as a kind of potentially a, a sort of new approach uh, to how to to use uh, tech. Um, I, I don't know, when you think about it, like how does it situate a, against other global models? It seems to me a little closer to China than perhaps anywhere else. Uh, although we do see that there are other democratic nation states that are also thinking about these kinds of unified approaches to digital public infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Where is this all headed? Is it possible to separate the future of DPI, of systems like Aadhaar and the stack of technologies more generally built on it? Is it possible to separate that from the anti-democratic trajectory of Indian politics generally?
1: I hope it is. I worry that as long as sort of India is controlling the narrative on these, it may not be. I think until recently, digital public infrastructures were really an open question uh, of what they meant. Like, so you had scholars like Ethan Zuckerman, for example, really promoting digital infrastructures as sort of infrastructural forms on the model of, say, Wikipedia or something like that. I'm all for that. But the kind of form of digital public infrastructure that we've seen with India, where they are public. In the sense that they require state intervention and sort of state uh, state f- a lot of money from the state, but their sort of benefits are not distributed equitably at all. So to the extent that we see that, I'm, I'm worried about it. I think part of why India has been so successful in pushing this narrative harks back to early Indian technocracy, right? It's a sort of narrative of moral leadership and non-alignment. It's saying that the way that the internet has worked in the US, where you have a handful of extractive big tech companies running the show and the way that you have it in China where you have a authoritarian state running the show those are not the only choices that you can have a model that is built by a democratic government that sort of is low cost and that empowers sort of people and serves development goals and that is a very uh, seductive promise Through the development of Aadhaar and these infrastructures, there have been strong critical voices against them. As I mentioned recently, there's been a sort of a strong sort of people's movement against the introduction of digital management systems into welfare that continues. And I think the way forward has to mean foregrounding those voices of criticism, taking them seriously, and developing sort of such infrastructures with actual input from people as foregrounding what would actually serve people rather than creating extractive systems in the name of the people. Well, we will see how the, suppose the Bangalore ideology
0: evolves, and I suppose that you'll be following it closely as well. What's next for you?
1: I'm continuing to work and write on the Bangalore ideology, so I will have more out on that front shortly, I hope. Well, hopefully we'll
0: have you back on to discuss it the next time there is another major development.
1: Great. Thank you, Justin. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin.techpolicy.press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. on press